Well, last week we watched as Amos totally and thoroughly denounced Israel for becoming as bad, if not worse, than the surrounding nations, these pagans that were their neighbors. You know, God called Israel to be a light to these nations, to essentially be the first missionary community in the entire world, to be a kingdom of priests, we read in the scriptures, and a holy nation, but instead they had become just like the other nations. And there's two ways in which God denounces them, as we saw for the past two weeks. They were wicked in their idolatries, meaning that they worshipped other gods and, 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 and lived according to their values, but they were also cruel in their injustices. Their worship of other gods led them to be uh, mean and vicious and harsh and thieving and, and violent towards one another. And so we saw how God roared like a lion from Jerusalem. And he, he summoned a shepherd, not a priest, not a, not a, a, a Pharisee. He, he summoned a, a shepherd and a fig farmer from a neighboring country, Amos, to be a prophet to Israel and to be essentially a messenger that God was declaring war on the sin that his people had given themselves over to. But as you might imagine, this message is not well received by Israel. Not only does God, through Israel, denounce their religious shortcomings, but he he denounces their entire way of life. Everything about them he finds absolutely distasteful, from their economic trends to their military practices to their social ideals, all of it is sinful before the Lord. And the people he targets most prominently are the most prominent members of society. See, this is where we get another glimpse of how the Lord views things very differently than how we tend to in our sinful human ways. Because the way we look at things as sinful human beings is that we like to worship ourselves and put our own desires and our own, um, our own wants and wishes above even the basic needs of other people. That we find happiness only when we're being served and doted upon, and that's where we try to find our sense of self. But we deceive ourselves into thinking that we can use people as an end to money or pleasure or power or fame or whatever. People are objects to be used, not images of God to be valued and treasured. And so Amos very clearly denounces people that think that if they build a house that's nice enough or live in a a neighborhood that's safe enough or or furnish um, their home with enough designer items and that they think they're protected by enough the, the, the strength of the military and they, they voted for the right people, uh, that he, they, they think that they're totally safe from any rebuke. And those are the people that Amos is the most critical of. They have, it seems like, all the control of how Israel functions. And with that control, they don't use it to worship God and help one another. They use it to be cold and cruel. Especially we read to people that are poor and orphaned or widowed or disabled or immigrated and so on. The people that are the easiest to be kind to are the people they're quickest to be harsh to. 
And this is the deception that I fear so often we find Christians in our own country falling prey to. The deceptions that if we give our, our allegiance to these temporary things that we'll find true and lasting peace in this life. And some of us may honestly, if we're not careful, just think all of this judgmental language is just Old Testament stuff. We're, we're, we're looking too far in the past if we read this and think it has any application. But last week, I, I, I reminded us that Amos, the way he talks about the people in Samaria, is the same way that Jesus talks about the church in Laodicea. Using some of the same language. Jesus said this in Revelation 3.17, He said to this this well-off congregation in a nice neighborhood, he says, For you say, I'm rich, I've become wealthy and need nothing, and you don't realize that you're wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. So this is not just a problem for Old Testament people, Old Testament saints. This is a problem for all God's people throughout history. When they start to put their trust and reliance on things and stuff and status and not the Lord Jesus. And so this week, we, we continue to see how Amos denounces very strongly, very shockingly even sometimes, the social and spiritual corruption of Israel. So let's look at these first five verses as we get started this evening. This week, God, again, through Amos, continues with a harsh rebuke. He essentially says the same thing we read in Revelation. For you say, Israel, you're rich and wealthy and need nothing, but you don't realize how wretched and pitiful and poor and blind and naked you truly are. And so let's look first at this, these, this first verse in which Amos boldly, even shockingly, condemns some of Israel's most prominent citizens, those that he also says are guilty of the worst abuses. So in verse 1, Amos angrily condemns this group that he calls the cows of Bashan. Now, the fact of the matter is, this is a downright and intentional insult to the wealthy noble women of Samaria. Now, if a preacher is to look at a group of people, specifically women, and call them cows, do you think that's going to go over well? It wouldn't go over well today. It certainly didn't go over well back then. But since it seems that they are, that that Amos has been preaching and they've been ignoring him, he's been telling them to return to the Lord and they've just brushed aside. He's having to get insulting to get their attention. They won't even pay attention to his his, uh, call to be holy and and to love the Lord and and to obey his covenant. So he's going to have to start calling people names just so they'll listen to him. And so he says, you cows of Bashan with this, this terribly barbed and downright offensive language. But he's doing this for a purpose because some of these people that are in this area are, are probably getting a lot of their wealth because they own a lot of land, they own cattle, they own farmland, the, the kind of the places that um, uh, Amos himself would work so he would maybe know kind of about this industry. But the thrust of the insult is not just, it's not about them being women, it's not, it's, it's not he's not trying to be degrading. He's just trying to use shocking language to get them to pay attention to the real problem. He said he calls them cows. He 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 dehumanizes them by calling them animals because 
They, and I quote, oppress the poor. They crush the needy and they demand something to drink, meaning that they're probably uh, addicted to wine or, 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 or strong substances. In other words, they're using their wealth they have to just serve themselves. They're the kind of people that boss their own family around and they're doing this all, Amos says, on the backs of those that are suffering, the most miserable of society. You know, when I was reading this, I was thinking about when I was working in retail in seminary, we were in, uh, the the location of my store was in uh, a zip code that was, I think, something like the fourth wealthiest zip code in the nation. I mean, these people that lived close by lived in three-story homes, four-story homes with elevators, two, four-car garages. Um, They were bankers, and I mean, they were old money from back in the Birmingham's coal and steel days. I mean, these were rich families. Some of them hadn't worked in four or five generations. And the public schools in that area were better than the private schools anywhere else in the metro Birmingham area. I mean, just the public schools had these unbelievable resources. And they had public transit in this town, but the only people that were ever I'd ever see using this public transit were people like maids, nurses. I mean, nobody used it that lived there. It was just to bus in people to manicure the lawns and, and, and cook the dinners and all that stuff. And every house just, I mean, unbelievable, enormous. And the churches in that area, you wouldn't believe it, looked like the Disney castle. I mean, they were gorgeous and well manicured. And, you know, these were historic and wealthy and powerful institutions. And this, to say the least, this was like an ideal community. Some, you know, big Hollywood people came out of this. Courtney, what's her name? Courtney Cox, is it, on Friends? She's from this area. Uh, some of the people that were on American Idol were from this area. In fact, one of the guys, one of the winners of American Idol came into our store one time and was awful. He was just an awful person. He will he'll, we'll go remain nameless. But I, I bring this up to say some of the worst people I've ever had to deal with in my life, shockingly cruel and mean, were people that were self-professed Christians from these rich neighborhoods. Folks, I was shocked some of the times that I would deal with people that were saying they were coming from church or working in a church and how entitled and selfish and demanding and angry they were. And what was more scandalous to me than anything, I had to work sometimes with people that said they were pastors that were the cruelest, meanest, ugliest people that I think I've ever met in my entire life. It was shocking. My non-Christian co-workers would go in the back room and complain about these people. They called them religious hypocrites and fanatics because that was their impression of what Christianity really is. It's a facade of being nice and servant-hearted, but it's filled from the inside with corruption and selfishness. These people would come into the store and they would all but demand red carpet be placed out for them. And if you didn't see them quick enough or help them, and, and you know, people that were wearing nice three-piece suits, huge diamond rings would get ugly if you didn't give them a $5 discount on their products. 
They would throw their church and say, I don't have time for this. I got a church to run. Do you know who I am? I'm the pastor of this big mega church downtown. I'm not kidding. It was shocking. And they were so sometimes rude and ugly to people that were poor that were working there. Single parents just trying to make ends meet. Immigrants that had moved into this country and were very sweet people but didn't speak uh, 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 without an accent. I read a passage like this about wealthy religious people who scream at poor folks through their wine-stained teeth. And I think about how upper-middle-class Christians in this country have so often brought disrepute on the gospel for the sake of their convenience. And as much as it outrages me and us to hear stories like that, it makes God even angrier. Because in verse 2, the Lord swears by his own holiness. He's putting his character at stake. By my own holiness, you better believe the days are coming, Israel, where I will drag you out of your mansions on meat hooks. You want to act like an animal? I'm going to take you, I'm going to fish you out of a pond like an animal. I'm going to take you out on a butcher's hook if you're going to act like a beast. Verse 3, he says, he'll drive these people like mindless cattle into exile because they have been treating his image bearers, his covenant people, like they were animals. And he says, I'll give you a taste of your own medicine. Church, don't you dare use the name of Jesus Christ to demand service from this world. You don't use Jesus' name to demand service. You use Jesus' name to serve. Don't dare sully the holy name and nature of God to an unbelieving world for a faster meal at a restaurant or a better deal on a smartphone. I have such... The Lord forgive me. I have rage in my heart. When I hear these well-to-do Christians complain, we got to keep Christ in Christmas. They get ugly with cashiers that are working double shifts. So they will just say, so you say Merry Christmas to them while they spend $2,000 on trinkets for a day where they don't even go to church and worship the Lord Jesus who came into this world. They use this as an excuse for their religiosity, so they can be as materialistic as they want. You're kidding yourself if you don't think that that spirit is deep in the American church. We love to be people that say, don't you know who we are? You should treat us better. We, uh, we're scandalized when, when Christians aren't, aren't praised and the, 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 the very steps that we take are people don't kiss our feet and, 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 and roll out the, the red carpet for us. That attitude is found nowhere on the lips of our Lord Jesus. You want to be great in the world to come. You want to be great in the kingdom of God, he says to his disciples, when they're vying, Lord, I want to sit at your right hand. Let me sit at your left hand. He says, you want to be great 
you be a servant to everybody in this world. James and John, you will drink from my cup. But you know how you'll drink from my cup? By being martyred for the sake of the gospel. You'll die because you love a community of poor and miserable people who the Roman Empire and the Jewish Pharisees have no time for. You'll be killed for those people. That's how you'll be great. Not because you demand to sit in the temple with me, but because you take off your cloak, tie it around your waist, and wash the feet of people that aren't even seen as human beings in this society. Those who follow Jesus have to deny themselves and take up their cross to reign with him. If you want to follow Jesus, you better get ready for a long, tough road of serving others. If you want to follow Jesus, that's what you get in this life. If you want to follow Jesus and be exalted, you've come to the wrong place. But here's the glory. Jesus loves us so dearly, even while we were sinners, he promises that we'll be resurrected and reign with him. But not in this present world order. It's in the one to come. But to the religious folks who think of themselves better than the person who cooks their food or stocks their groceries or cleans their house or fixes their car or provides their medicine... Amos launches a scathing attack in verses 4 and 5. He says, come on down. Come on down, Israel, to Bethel and rebel. Go over to Gilgal. Rebel there too. Bring your sacrifices, your little uh, meager things every morning, your tents every three days. Offer your leavened bread as a thanksgiving sacrifice. Loudly proclaim your free will offerings. Do what it is that you love to do. Put on a show for people, religious spectacle, while you despise the people I tell you to love. See, coming to church, being a person that uh, darkens the door of a church every Sunday and, and you know, puts a little coin in the coffer and, 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 you know, just sings louder than everybody else, that carries no cachet with the Lord. We trick ourselves and we think, oh, we're here on Sunday nights, so we're better than the people that only come on Easter and Christmas. Go ahead, Israel. Go ahead with your self-righteous worship. Go ahead being hypocrites who are mean as snakes to people and walk home sweetly like you've never done anything wrong in the world. Go ahead and lie to yourself. Go ahead and hoard all your little gold and silver from people in need and melt it down and put it and shape it into the form of a cow and worship it and pretend like that's me. Go ahead, Israel. See what happens when you do that. Then Amos says, this is what the sovereign Lord God declares to you. Go ahead and do it. Test me and find out. God tells us in in verses 6 through 13 what happens to these kind of people. He reminds them of the signs that they see in their midst and they're already ignoring. He reminds them by showing them five disasters that have struck them in recent years and will strike them again. 
There will be no food, number one. Number two, there will be no rain. Number three, no crops. Number four, no health or life. And number five, no safety or security. Notice after he lists them, he ends each of these declarations over these five disasters with, yet you did not return to me. These covenant curses. In Deuteronomy 27 and 28, I said, Israel, if you are obedient, if you follow my statutes and commands and ordinances, I'll honor you. I'll bless your land and your people and your children. But if you do not, you'll have these curses. And he goes on to list wars, rumors of wars, earthquakes, famine, plague, all that stuff. And look at what's happening to Israel. Amos lists out here, again, verse 6, no food. I gave you absolutely nothing to eat in all your cities. A shortage of food in all your communities. Yet what? You didn't return to me. There's covenant curse number one. That should have been assigned to them. Number two, verses seven and eight, no rain. I withered the rain. I also rather withheld the rain from you while you were there, still three months until harvest. I sent rain on one city, but not on the other, on one field, while the other received nothing and withered. And two or three cities staggered to another city to drink, but even then they couldn't get enough water. Yet what, Israel You didn't return to me. Covenant curse number two. That's two in a row. This third one should be a short fire sign. This should be a pattern. They've got no food, and now they've got no no rain. They've got no water. Number nine. Maybe they could hunt some, you know, maybe the animals they couldn't hunt down anymore, but maybe they have some stored crops, you know, things that were put in, in storage or waiting. No, verse 9, no crops either. I struck everything you had with blight and mildew. The locusts devoured your many gardens and vineyards, your fig trees and olive trees. Yet, what? You didn't return to me. He has taken away every source of life for them. No food, no water, no crops, no vegetation, no animals. Yet they didn't return to him. See, God is taking away the most basic substance they need to exist. Nature has turned its back on Israel. They should know that this is a sign that they need to repent. That something about the way they're living is not working out. They need to be people of contrite hearts, people that are obedient to the Lord. Their cities are starving and thirsting. And the irony is, in all of this, While they're going to Bethel to worship a golden cow, they never once think to look to God for answers. Their economies were collapsing and they still worshiped themselves. God went after their stuff and they still didn't get it. He collapsed their economic and monetary system. They still didn't get it. So he has to get even more intense with them. In verse 10, he has to go after their life and health and well-being. I sent plagues like those I sent in Egypt. Egypt is the archetype of evil, 
of evil people, of evil uh, culture, of evil gods. I sent plagues on you, Israel, like I did Egypt. And you're still not getting it. I allowed your young men to be killed with swords, their weapons to be taken away, their horses to be taken away. I allowed you to smell like death, where even you couldn't stand the smell of failure and defeat in your own ranks. Yet you did not return to me. And fifth and finally, verse 11, no safety or security. I overthrew some of you like I did Sodom and Gomorrah. Sodom and Gomorrah, if you don't remember, it's not simply that they were living debaucherous and they had lust that could not be satisfied, but there was a great cry that went up to the Lord. Read Genesis again. Read about that great cry that went up uh, 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 about Sodom and Gomorrah. And I I think this is carried over in one of the other prophets, maybe it's Ezekiel, about how they were rich and powerful and yet they ground the poor and the needy to dust in their own gates. And that outraged the Lord. He's wiping, not only is he plaguing them like Egypt, but he's sending cataclysm after cataclysm to wake them up like he had to do to Sodom and Gomorrah. They were like a burning bundle of wood in a fire that the Lord barely snatched them out of. Yet you did not return to me. Folks, do you reckon, now I always tell you this, we have to be cautious when we look out at the world. We don't read a newspaper and then correlate that one-to-one with absolute certainty to any sin or anything else. You know, sometimes Jesus says, when he, do you remember when reading John recently, when Lazarus died, that he said it was, a, it was good even that Lazarus died. Even though Jesus wept because he hated death, he hated what happens to his creation, it was good so that they could see what he was about to do so they might believe. We never say these suffering or misery comes into, uh, we don't say this callously. You know, when somebody, if somebody gets hit by a car and they lose function of their legs, We don't say, well, God did it to make you a stronger person. That's that's harsh and callous. We don't say that. We believe God's in control, but we're we're sensitive. We don't know why God does what he does. We, We try to get inside his mind, but I think we're too hasty with that. The whole book of Job is to say God is in all his wisdom and, and, and creating and sustaining the cosmic order from a molecular level to a galactic level. He has, his thoughts are so beyond our thoughts. We have to be so careful in esteeming or, or, or rather assigning blame to any disasters that we're thinking of. But let me ask you this. Let me ask you, if it, just as a thought experiment. When we look at what's happening in our lives today, where we're either on, we're drowning on the East Coast or we're burning on the West Coast, where I'm reading reports now about global disruption of supply chains because of these crazy weather events, that farmers are saying wildfires, even if they didn't damage their crop, the smoke and toxins have made their things inedible basic human staples that we have 
they're fearful. Experts are fearful these supplies will dwindle in the next few years. Look at the violence in this country. We have so many shootings that happen in this nation now that we don't even know about all of them. It used to be if somebody went into a school and shot somebody, that was a a once-in-a-lifetime event. We have a shooting of 10 or 12 people every other week. Our economy is unstable. We've seen military disaster. We are living through a raging pandemic that keeps hitting us harder and harder and harder. Do you think Christians in America should maybe consider that God is using things to try to get our attention? We don't know the purposes for any of the things he's allowing in the world. Not really. We might have suspicions. But do you think all the stuff we're seeing, the decay of our world, the decay where we're not even civil to one another anymore. I've never, I, I never believed we would live in such a divided time. Do you think the Lord is trying to say, return to me? Do you think he wants us to stop looking to Wall Street and Washington to keep us safe and happy and secure? Do you think he's calling us to hope not in the United States of America, but in the kingdom of heaven? A kingdom that he is building even now across time and across borders. Not with the rich and the powerful, but even with the poor and the sick and the lowly like us. Not with religious hypocrites who think they're better than everybody else, but with people that are repentant sinners who turn into servants for his sake. Church, you've heard this quote before, I know. The church is not a hall of heroes. It's a hospital for sinners. We all come in here shell-shocked by the weeks that we've had. Just... Paying bills that keep getting higher and higher and more, going to more and more doctor's appointments, dealing with heartbreaks, with our extended family, where our marriages are strained, our relationship with our children is, is tough, we hate our job, our neighborhood is a disaster. We come in here desperately clinging to hope. God called Israel out of slavery. He found them when they were at their weakest. He called them out of slavery to Egypt so they could serve the world as priests. He called them to serve, to be a light to the nations. He didn't call them to go and build an empire where they could treat the world like dirt, but where they could proclaim his glory to the world. That's why he chose Israel. And Jesus rescues his church wherever they may be in the world, whatever time they may live in, from the even worse slavery of sin and death so that they can not sit on their high horses and be judgmental to everybody, but so they can be witnesses that if he loves me, even me, the chief of sinners, he loves you too. We're witnesses to a kingdom that Jesus said to Pilate is not from this world. If it was from this world... Jesus said, I'd have my my stormtroopers come in here 
And they would take me by force and I would seize your power. That's the way the world seizes power. But God shows his power by sending his son to a cross to die for us. That's how God reveals his power. That's how he reveals his kingship, by going to an execution place for sinners. And to quote the the mother of our Lord Jesus in Luke's gospel, he exalts the lowly and he sends the rich and powerful of this world away empty. Christians, we cannot let anything stand in the way of our mission in this world. And that is to love and serve and forgive and preach the name, forgive by and preach in the name of Jesus. If we do not, if we refuse to do that, if we refuse to serve only ourselves, demand only our needs be met, care only about us. If we're the kind of people who says, I don't care about you. I don't care about your well-being. I don't care what you do. I don't care what you're suffering with. You can expect the same thing that happens to Israel in verse 12 to 13 to happen to the church. The Lord's patience will run dry. And the covenant curses he promised in Deuteronomy that have not shaken them from their idolatry and their injustice, he'll meet them with a final word of judgment then. Verse 12 says, Therefore, Israel, since you have not returned to me, even though I've shown you through these curses that I am against the way you're living, this is what I'll do to you. And since I will do that to you, Israel, Prepare to meet your maker, he says. That's the last straw. The next thing you're going to see is the king of armies, the Lord of armies coming to deal with you. Who is this God? What is he like? Verse 13 answers in a terrifying way. He's the one that forms mountains. He creates the wind. He reveals his thoughts to man. The one who makes the dawn out of darkness and strides on the heights of the earth. The Lord, the God of all power and armies is his name. And you have made an enemy with him. Folks, does this sound like somebody that's to be trifled with? Do we sincerely think that our money or military, our culture or anything in this creation can protect us from a holy God like that? If we do, we have not been paying attention. We haven't been paying attention to the way this world is going. We haven't been paying attention to what our society looks like. And we have not been paying attention to what he's trying to say to us in our lives, if we can think that. Christians, we have to be on guard against what Paul and Colossians this morning told us was worldly philosophies and empty deceits. See, it's so tempting for us to let our cultural values of monetary and social success to drive us to lord ourselves over other people. That's what Jesus says. That's what the Gentiles do. They love to boss each other around. We're good Gentiles in that sense. We love to lord it over other people. But that is simply not the way of Jesus. The Lord's own brother James was so sick to death of the religious culture of Jerusalem. He was so sick of how the church in Jerusalem was acting with their money and their power and how they were treating the the poor Christians among their ranks that he 
he wrote something that sounds downright Old Testament. This is in the New Testament. James 5 says this. Come now, you rich people, weep and wail over the miseries that are coming on you. Your wealth has rotted and your clothes are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver are corroded and their corrosion will be a witness against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have stored up treasure in the last days. Look, the pay that you withhold from your workers who mowed your fields cries out. And the outcry of the harvesters has reached the ears of the Lord of armies. You've lived luxuriously on this earth and you have indulged yourselves and you have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. And you have condemned, you have murdered the righteous who does not resist you. James is writing this to the church. He's not writing it to the Pharisees. He's not writing it to Old Testament Israel. He is writing this to the church. I think if the church in Jerusalem in the first century could look at the church in America today, they would think every single one of us was a king and a queen with the the wealth and the glories that have been given to us. You know, churches, Christians that meet all throughout the world meet in huts. They have one tattered Bible. Their pastor has not had any training. They, They meet in fear of their lives. And we get huffy if a culture that cares nothing for Jesus doesn't put Christmas on the side of a Starbucks cup. We get huffy when people in our lives that live down the street from us put out a a kind of flag or something that offends our sensibilities. We won't go over and talk to them and share the, the, the gospel of Jesus with them. We'll just call them dirty, debaucherous dogs that live down the street. Amen. Folks, when we put our trust and put all of our hope in material things, we will make an idol out of it. And consequently, we end up living ungodly and unjust lives that hurt other people. Here are Christians that aren't paying their workers. These people come and clean up their yards. They short them on money. James says, you have condemned and murdered the righteous with your actions. That's not the kind of people we're called to be. I know that is the American way to follow the almighty dollar, but that is not the way of Jesus. We need to be like the people that Jesus describes in the parables, the people that find a, girl, a, a, a pearl rather of great price or a treasure in the field and sell even the shirt off their back to go and get this greater treasure. That treasure is Jesus in his kingdom. Everything we have, everything we have, 
we could give away and sell to obtain that and still we would come up short. Yet Jesus offers it to us freely. I pray that God helps us resist the temptations of this world and of this country and to be like the ancient church in Macedonia that Paul writes about in 2 Corinthians 8. He says to these Corinthians that just are doing disgusting things with one another, taking advantage of each other's body, getting drunk and and, and fighting with each other, all the stupid stuff that church people love to do. He reminds this Corinthian church of this. We want you to know, brothers and sisters, about the grace of God that was given to the churches of Macedonia. During a severe trial brought about by affliction, their abundant joy and their extreme poverty overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. These people had nothing. These churches in this other area that were poor had nothing. I can testify, Paul says, according to their ability and even beyond their ability of their own accord, they begged us earnestly for the privilege of sharing in the ministry to the saints. And not just as we hope. Instead, they gave themselves first to the Lord and then to us by God's will. Paul goes on to say, these people that had nothing, that were living in poverty, gave beyond their means because they understood that Jesus and people are the riches worth caring about. Jesus is the one to be worshipped, and the ones that he makes and loves and forgives are the ones to be treasured. They understood that, and they gave the money they didn't even have to help those people. Paul says these people, although poor in the world, gave joyously and generously to other churches in need. But why? Because in verse 7, it tells us that in their love, they excelled also in grace. And that's what, and what motivated this love and grace, rather, is what we read in verse 9. For they knew this. This is the core of it all. This is what we need to walk away with tonight, remembering. For they know, as we know, That the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, though he was rich, for our sake he became poor, so that by his poverty we might become rich. Wealth is in Jesus and him alone. Nothing else. Nothing else in this world. Nothing else in this world but Jesus and him alone. That's the kind of people that God calls us to be. We may not be rich or impressive. We may not be able to offer a lot in the offering. We may not be the most educated. We may not be the wisest. We may not give the greatest counsel. We may not be anything else. But what we can give people and what we can give each other is the love and grace of Jesus. And that is more wealth than we could possibly ever know. Let's pray. Lord, make us into a kind of people who by your love and grace are are gracious and loving to others. Make us materially and spiritually generous people. That Lord, even when we are poor, even when we feel we have nothing to give, Lord, that you might show your vast and everlasting wealth through us by our knowing you 
and worshiping you, and even better than that, Lord, being known and f- by you and forgiven by you. It's in Jesus' name and his name alone that we pray and ask all these things and we put all of our hope. Amen.